Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Books Podcast. On this edition, we'll be talking to Danielle McLaughlin, whose new short story collection, Dinosaurs and Other Planets, is this month's Irish Times Book Club pick. Danielle's award-winning stories have appeared in The New Yorker, The Irish Times, and in The Stinging Fly, among many other fine publications, and Dinosaurs and Other Planets, her debut collection of 11 exquisitely crafted stories, was recently published by The Stinging Fly Press. My name is Laura Slattery, and I'm joined on this podcast by Irish Times journalist Sarah Hamilton, and we'll be asking Danielle about some of the dark and delicate moments, the startling metaphors, and the vividly drawn characters in her stories. Welcome all. Welcome, this is great. Thank you. Love to be here. Danielle, uh, the title of your collection is a kind of a, a symbol of, of childhood hope uh, for me. But the, the dominant themes in your stories are ones of pain and loss and change and regret. And a sense maybe in the characters that life isn't quite working out for them. And um, was this always the, your intention when you started writing? Or is this something that happened on the page? It's mostly something that happens on the page, I think. Often a story will start from an image or from something that somebody says. Um, in Dinosaurs and Other Planets, in that story, it started out from something my youngest child said to me when he asked me one night when I was putting to him to bed. He said, are there dinosaurs on other planets? And I thought, wow, what, what a wonderful question that is and what a starting point for a story. The idea that something that maybe gone from us here may still exist somewhere else and the idea of whether or not there is hope in that because if it is that far away does the fact that it exists does it bring us anything at the end of the day is there hope or or is there not so it's not that I start out to write about a particular issue um I didn't write the collection to any particular theme, but I can see themes emerging from the work, um, looking back over them now that I have a body of work to look back on. So just to explain the context in the title uh, story, um, Kate is a woman who you know feels a lot of desolation, I guess, in her life. She feels distant from her husband and her children, but she has this consolation in her grandson, Oshin, uh, who, when told that um, an asteroid has destroyed, destroyed dinosaurs on Earth, he immediately you know, mentions the fact that there may still be a possibility of, of dinosaurs on other planets. So there's a beautiful contrast there between Kate as an adult and uh, Oshin as a small child, and maybe a sense that a lot of time has passed in Kate's life, that, that maybe a lot of regret has built up too. I think so. I think um, she is somebody who is struggling with the place that she finds herself in now. And as you say, the sense of regret and um, she's at a challenging point in her marriage, I think. And we have the contrast in the story um, as well. As you say, we have Oshin and Kate and then we have Coleman and Pavel, um, the two men in in the story, um, her husband and then her her daughter's um, new man, and the differences in their in their approaches and um, her interactions with them in the story. I think. And one of the very beautiful aspects to your writing is the scale in which you show the characters interacting with the natural world, both in in this story and, and in many many others in the collection. So we have images of blue bottles and ducks and seals and minks and, and oleanders. Is is this often the the starting point for a story? Sometimes an image will be with me um, very very strongly at, at the beginning of the story, and maybe a number of images will will. 
um, I suppose, develop together. I might start with one image and different things will gather around that image then. Um, so just to take dinosaurs and other planets, that story as an example, started with the question, but then um, my kids brought home a skull from a nearby forest one day. So images um, gathered together to form a story. Um, I'm quite, I suppose I, I like writing about setting in detail. I like to have the setting quite, quite strong in a story. And I draw on settings that I know in rural County Cork where I live or other places that, that are familiar to me. So, for example, I have another story set in the Inishon Peninsula where my husband is from. And that's another place that that I'm familiar with. And I can bring the details of setting in then and use them in the story. And they're mostly all in, in Ireland. It's an Irish setting for, for almost, almost all. all. Almost all, exactly. There's one story set in Italy, but the other stories are all set in Ireland. And even the character in Italy, of course, is kind of haunted by the past, her Irish past. Yes, that, that's right. She's, she's holidaying in this place. It's, it's not the place that she's from. OK, well, Danielle is now going to read an extract from one of her stories. And it's called Those That I Fight, I Do Not Hate. Over to you, Danielle. Ranala on a summer Saturday. The pavements scattered with blossoms. The air pulsating with the rhythmic thrum of lawnmowers. Kevin stood at the window of the miller's living room, watching a dozen or so little girls pose for photos in the front garden. His own daughter was among them. Her blonde curls straightened and pinned in a plait, so that at first... In the midst of so many other plaited heads, he hardly recognised her. The Millers lived in a Victorian red brick near the church, and Fiona Miller had insisted on the party. It was no trouble, she told anyone who attempted to cry off. It would be a treat for the children. And she and Bob were happy to host it, knowing as they did that not everyone was as fortunate as themselves. The girls shrieked and giggled, buzzing with sugar and summer. And then, remembering themselves, they smoothed the skirts of their white dresses and raised small, careful hands to adjust veils and tiaras. Lovely, aren't they? Kevin said, turning to the woman behind the drinks table. The woman frowned. She wasn't the caterer, but one of Fiona Miller's friends perhaps even one of her sisters. And this placed her firmly in the ranks of people who hated him. Great that the reins held off, he said, because she could hardly find that objectionable. But she began to move bottles around the table as if they were chess pieces, taking them by the necks, setting them down in their new positions with unmistakable hostility. Sun angled through the slatted blinds, igniting the glitter of cards on the mantelpiece, bouncing off the guns of Bob Miller's favourite model plane, a World War I Sopwith camel, displayed on a stand beside the door. Bob's great-grandfather had served in the London Irish Rifles, losing an arm at Fleur Courcelette. His uniform and his cap with its badge of harp and crown was displayed in a large glass case at the end of the miller's hall. Also in the case were things belonging to other dead men, bullets, 
armbands and to letters that Bob had purchased on the internet. Bob liked to joke that he'd been a military man in a previous life, though in this one he was senior actuary for an insurance company. Kevin turned again to the window. His wife was in the garden also, talking, he saw now, to the man who'd once been his boss. Earlier, he and the man had exchanged terse hellos in the hallway. He'd asked Kevin, and why did everyone feel obliged to ask, if anything had turned up yet? And with that out of the way, had retreated to a suitable distance. Kevin watched the man rest a hand consolingly on his wife's arm while she dabbed at her eyes with a hanky. He needed a drink. He'd hoped the woman at the table might have gone to join the others in the garden, but she remained at her post, arms folded across her chest. On his way out of the room, he touched a finger to the propellers of the little plane, sending the blades spinning into a blur of wood and metal. Thank you very much, Danielle. Um, There's another beautiful contrast there, I think, in the characters of uh, Bob and Kevin, in that Bob has a means to escape his life. He has uh, escapism, but uh, Kevin maybe, as we see later in the story, isn't quite able to, kind of the misery that it's in his life at the moment. Yeah, Kevin is um, stuck and struggling, I think. Um, he has difficulties in his, in his relationships and I think he's, he's in a bad place. He has a um, problem with drink and um, difficulties with his wife and he's in a difficult situation because he's in the home of a former lover. Yes, and of course, um, the children, it's its their communion day, isn't yes, that right? Yes, that's yeah. right. So it's all very complicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sirka Hamilton, what was your response to, to this and, and the other the other stories in, in, in the collection? Well, I really enjoyed reading this collection. Um, it's, uh, for me, just the overarching theme. I mean, well, I suppose there's, there's lots of different themes. There's lots of different stories in it. Um, but there's a lovely subtlety running throughout. Uh, there's kind of a backbone of, of subtlety there's an honesty there too uh, in the writing which which I really love um, but moreover there are stories of kind of very private personal tragedies um, and I think a lot of them really stay with you and you often wonder uh, will they stay private as well are we just getting a little glimpse into these small details in people's lives uh, like the one that you just read there um, so very haunting uh, collection I would say. Yes, I mean there is certainly an, an honesty in the writing, but but funnily enough, there's one one of, your, one of your characters sort of pays the price for being too honest. It's uh, Alice in All About Alice sort of reveals her backstory to somebody who who, who may or may not you know uh, be a future hope for her, but that turns out to be something of a mistake. Is the, do you kind of have a position on how much people should reveal of themselves to to others? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I'm not sure it's something I've worked out myself yet in life. <laughs> Unanswerable. Um, maybe that's why I put it to my characters and let them um, try and work their way through it. I think as I write the stories, I do try and be as true as I can in, in all the little details of their day-to-day lives and their day-to-day difficulties. And I... Um, 
I don't try and make them too pretty if they're not pretty or I don't, um, I suppose, take away the ugliness. If there's ugliness there, I try and leave things the way that, that they are. Um, I think it's true that people here, they do pay the price for risks they take sometimes in what they share with other people and maybe they're not very good at understanding how to bridge gaps or how to make connections, um, how to establish understandings. And, you know, as as we already mentioned, the natural world uh, figures um, prominently. And, you know, the, the sort of the, the live animals and insects that appear sometimes, they're, they're kind of a metaphor for people being trapped in their lives in some I think one of the characters says they want to leave their leave their life like a balloon leaves a fairground is is there hope that they can do do that do you think I'm not entirely sure how much hope is there for the particular characters in that often I will see um, a particular section of story a particular section of their lives in very great detail but I won't have much of their lives before that and I may not have great details of their lives into the future so I think um, I perhaps try and leave things open a little it's more a case of how the story works out and um, perhaps we have to, to guess a little bit at, at what's going to happen next um, there's that other story um, when we're, we were just talking about honesty there. There's another story uh, where a young woman is pregnant and she is she's not telling anybody throughout the whole story. It's her her, her mother and her sister. And there's a lovely uh, moment when uh, Aileen is the, the narrator um, and her mother are sitting in a cafe and they're watching uh, her sister arrive. And as you say, it kind of captures this very, uh, this just tiny little glimpse into their lives where you see the sister arriving and she's got four kids and it's all okay chaotic and she's trying to get them to stay in the car, give them their crisps and the mother and daughter just watching this scene and it just seems to sum everything up. I mean, here's this woman who's pregnant, hasn't told anybody yet. She's thinking, oh gosh, is this all what is ahead of me? Um, I just think that it, it was very beautifully done um, it kind of captures just a very essential moment and they are real life moments, I think, sometimes where often you do have uh, just a little flash of kind of reality of the way things are and then life goes on after that, you know. Yes, I, th I think that often people have opportunities to maybe bridge the gaps with others, but they are um, they're so fleeting. And mm -hmm. as you say, life moves on and people, I think, maybe don't manage to capture those moments and they just have a sense of what they have missed and they never quite um, manage to, to establish the extent of the relationship that they want with the other person. So they have this idea of opportunities, but opportunities going by and maybe a sense of opportunities missed if they're looking back. Well, also, there's there's kind of a there's a helplessness as well that kind of exists. I mean, just going back to the title story, the grandmother um, in Dinosaurs and Other Planets, the grandmother there, she has this, this sense of loss. And I can't help wondering as well, it's like it's often a theme that you imagine happens quite a lot. And yet we don't hear enough about it, of the stories of grandparents that are denied access to their children for whatever or their, their grandchildren for whatever reasons, um, you know, bad relationships with their children or they're living in a different country. And you get this sense from the grandmother in that that she's kind of missing out on this lovely opportunity that she really wants to have uh, and kind of 
be there for this young boy who has a very erratic uh, mother um, and there is something very helpless about it. Uh, I think that's kind of a theme that that is, is recurring through through the book as well. Would you agree? Or? Yeah, I think um, there is a sense of people, yeah, who who maybe see something that is beyond their reach. And I feel um, I feel sorry for Kate in that story because I think she is someone who I think um, she's in a difficult position with her husband, Coleman, and he's someone who it's, it's very difficult to, to make a connection with and, you know, what is going on with Coleman in that mm-hmm. story. And she also has a difficult relationship with her daughter and she is um, a long way away from her son who has moved to Japan. And now we have Oshin, who she would really, really um, like to establish a relationship with. He's her only grandchild. You know, she wants um, there to be that closeness between them and you know he's going to be taken away from her as well to Australia so um, we have someone who really does want um, to have close relationships with people so it's not that she is deliberately distancing herself from people and um, she wants this closeness but it seems to be denied her at and every I- ironically time. Coleman seems to connect more with Oshin the dialogue between them is is is, is beautiful I think um, when he's the one who who talks about asteroids and dinosaurs. Yes, that's right. And I think um, it must be especially difficult for Kate, I'm thinking in that story, that she is she's um, maybe a warmer person than Coleman is in many ways. And she's the one who really does want to have these closer family relationships. And yet the child has no real interest in her. And it's Coleman who is so distant from her and who she strives to understand. He's the one who actually manages to to establish a connection with the child. So we have that contradiction there. People who want closeness and who really try hard um, I suppose be, being foiled in their in their efforts and just seeing it for hap- happening for other people, but not for them. Yes, no, it's uh, it, that's actually quite quite a, quite a painful one, I think. Um, Sarah Gill Martin, in reviewing this collection for the newspaper, um, said that the stories read as an antidote to society's definition of normal, which I think what she meant was the the characters who are leading what might be termed more traditional lives with marriage, uh, married with children, um, they're not presented as being that much happier or, or less lonely than the characters who are maybe more on the margins of society. Is, is that what you set out to convey? And can you, can you tell us a little bit more about, about, about why you went down that path? I didn't set out um, to, to convey anything specifically in particular like that. It was more these were the characters that came to me when I um, set out writing down what the ideas and, and the images brought. Um, I think maybe I'm interested in the private or the hidden struggles and the little quiet um, personal desperations, um, things that maybe are a little bit below the surface and we see um, struggles that are going on quietly maybe in what we might think are very straightforward or happy lives but that have their own difficulties. And there's some jealousy as well in, in, in the stories, you know, stories such as the, the, the Art of Footbinding, which which opens the collection. Um, Janice, um, 
she feels uh, uh, jealousy for for good reason, but it's often kind of misdirected and it, it comes out as anger, perhaps. Um, and that's a, the theme that that crops up in in a couple of the other stories as well, where people feel jealous of other other women, feeling jealous of other women a lot of the time. Although in the title story we have maybe a hint that Coleman feels a bit jealous of of Pavel. But um, is 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 that something? Is that fertile ground for a short story? The theme of jealousy. I think it's interesting um, in that, especially when examining relationships between women, it interests me, I think, to see what happens when um, women are at odds with each other or when women don't support other women, because I think that's when it gets really interesting, because when you think about it, women are faced with so many struggles in this world that, you know, it would make sense um, for them to support each other. And I think mostly they do. But people being very well adjusted and nice to each other is, is, you know, all well and good in life, but it's not maybe the most exciting ground for fiction. So I think it gets interesting when we have relationships between women where something goes wrong and something has gone badly wrong and we're watching uh, perhaps the self-destructiveness of that playing out. People who maybe are um, within close range of help, but who are unable for whatever reason to reach out and take that help. I think Janice, that you mentioned in that story, she's really her own worst enemy because there are people trying to help her and there are people who she could be directing her energies to trying to help um, her daughter, for example. But she is really stuck. I think she's she's in a bad place and she's not able to take the help that might be there. And I think she's angry and maybe angry at the world around her and she has um, angers that perhaps are rooted in the role that she finds herself in that she's not suited to anger at society but she's misdirecting her anger and she's getting into a, a more and more difficult place I think. Serka, how do you feel about the way that uh, old flaws of, of humanity are, are presented in these stories? Well, yeah, no, it's fascinating. It's it, it's it's really interestingly done. I mean, if we're talking about the the relationships between women, um, there is this story, uh, The Scent of Dead Flowers, in which there are three female characters in it, um, the aunt and uh, the daughter and then the niece that comes to visit. Um, and I think the interaction between all of them are, is, is very interesting in the sense that you have uh, the niece who comes to visit and you're hoping that this is going to be a great experience for her and it should be. She has this romance and yet there's this tragedy that happens at the end. And then you also have the the character of the aunt herself who is a little bit tragic in herself and that you're not really sure why is she where she is in her life which is a little bit lost she seems and also a little bit jealous herself of this uh, young niece of hers uh, coming in and um, drawing the attention of her lodger um, and uh, so I thought that's, that story for me was one of the most interesting. I love the, the Debussy mentioned at the end as well and how that kind of this tragedy from her, her younger years uh, stays with her uh, throughout. I thought that was very vivid. And that leads me very nicely into asking how you choose the titles to your stories, because this is the the smell of dead flowers. That's that's a reference, is it not, to uh, White Sargasso Sea? Yes, it it comes out of a section in that book. Yeah, mm-hmm. that book I that I absolutely love, and that uh, made big impression on me when I read it. Um, yeah, I think this idea of um, 
something withering away, I think, and yet there is still something there. Um, I suppose something between wasting away and at the same time there is still life. Maybe we have we have the scent still, even though the flowers are gone. And I think um, we have Luan in that story quite trapped, I think, as many of the, the characters are, I think, in the collection. Um, she's in a, in a very difficult place and she is stuck in her life. Um, and she is, I think, jealous of this young woman who comes in. And it's a difficult situation, of course, because you know, she, she's fond of the young woman and they have all these these family connections that her her past, I suppose, and the girl's mother and Luan were so close. Um, but we do have this jealousy because we have the, the triangle between um, Luan and her lodger, Marcus and um, Louise. And yeah, Louise, I mean, Louise is the narrator of the story and this is the first person story. It's the only one that's first person, I think. It is. I struggled with that story for several years and for a long time it was in third person and it didn't work out for me until I changed it to first person. And when I changed it to first person, a lot of things started happening happening more interesting things than than had happened in the earlier versions so and one of the 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 standout moments in it is a sense that as a reader you maybe you understand more than Louise does at the time about why Luanne behaves the way she does she has all this parental stress um that Louise as a young person doesn't uh, doesn't seem to understand <laughs> for some reason until until la- until that's how you end the story in fact is where she I think she maybe acknowledges that Luann had all kinds of things going on that 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 were that were causing her a lot of pain yeah i think um Louise in this story is very naive and very innocent and that was one of the interesting aspects of the story and of her character for me because um, I think I have a lot of sympathy for Louise as a character. I have more patience with her and um, I'm quite fond of her. I think maybe it's her youth that um, leads me to be more forgiving of her, I think. Um, some of the older characters, while I do try to be sympathetic towards them, I sometimes think, oh, don't you know any better at this hour of your life? Whereas with mm-hmm. Louise, she's so young and she, she doesn't really get um, the dynamics or the nuances of the household that she's living in. And of course, it is uh, something terrible happens in that story. That, state, that wasn't her fault and that is going to stay with her for the rest of her life. I think the lodger, doesn't he say at one point, he says, oh, poor you, you, you didn't know what you were coming into in, in into yes, this house. Yes, that's you know? right. And he yeah. talks about what, what was her mother thinking, mm. sending her there. Yeah, and I suppose she is naive and possibly a little bit uh, insensitive, I suppose, to, to the, the complexity of the situation. But I do think you feel for her really at the end because you kind of think she shouldn't have had that experience. She shouldn't have had to witness that. I don't yeah. think the tragedy that we won't say <laughs> unless anybody, any of our listeners haven't, haven't read it yet. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and, and infidelity is another theme that crops up in in several of the stories. And it's, it's almost there's a sort of deceit that kind of coexists with it, within all these intimate relationships. And, uh, and we see the destructive um, impact of that. Yeah, um, that's something, again, that I wasn't writing. I wasn't writing to a particular theme of betrayal or infidelity, but it does crop up in different ways. And I think what we have is this idea of breaches of trust 
in in different ways and I think it may stem from the way in which the characters struggle to know the other people in their lives and the question of how well um, they can ever know even the people that they are quite close to. So we do have the question of um, how much trust is given and um, what happens when, when trust is broken, the risks, I suppose, of, of trusting. Do you have a favourite story that you've written or is that like choosing one of your children? <laughs> it's it's quite, um, quite difficult to say. I think... Possibly that story we were just talking about, The Smell of Dead Flowers, um, is, I think that's my my favourite story. Um, When you say that some of your stories, uh, they begin with an image, I was really curious with the the first story, um, the the foot-binding one, about the little crystal animals on the the landing. Um, And I'm wondering, they just seemed so vivid. You you know, they're described as being on the land. They always moved um, after the cleaner comes. They're in the wrong order. Um, Later on, they, 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 they come back. Do you have crystal animals like that in your house or where did you see them? Or, you know, I was just curious what, what what's behind that image for you? Yeah, um, I don't have crystal <laughs> animals, but I think it may be, again, the way that animals seem to sneak into mm-hmm. all of my stories regardless. And of course, terrible things happen to the animals in my stories. <laughs> so this is maybe another way of me, even though I, I didn't, you know, consciously plan it. But of course, they are animals mm-hmm. and they get smashed up at the end so it's in keeping with the way animals work their way in and okay. um, lend themselves and that crops up in a different country as well which is a story about um, in my notes here she's described as a city girl Sarah but but she, yeah she's out of her out of her natural habitat <laughs> no pun intended but she, she's visiting her boyfriend's home in, in, in Donegal and uh, they, uh, there's a, a, a seal uh, that's in a bad way and as the story unfolds, it becomes more and more clear, um, I suppose, the differences between her and her boyfriend, that she's seeing him in a new light and the people around him in his in his in his natural habitat and that she, maybe she feels it's symbolizing maybe the distance in their relationship or something, something that might be uh, breaking down. I think she says she's, she feels like she's drifting out to shore. Yeah, that story, it's it's fiction, but I did draw on a lot of, um, I suppose, personal elements, autobiographical elements when I was writing it. The place where the story is set on the Inishowen Peninsula is where my husband is from. And we met in Dublin, so I would have made that journey from Dublin up to the Inishowen Peninsula many times. So there was that sense for me always of the extreme beauty. It's such a beautiful, beautiful place, the Inishowen Peninsula. And also so wild and so isolated and so, I suppose, completely different to to Dublin or to County Cork, where where I'm from. So I was working with a landscape that I knew and um, using, I suppose, the landscape to to build the strangeness into the story. Um, The seal element, I think actually it may have been the seal element that started off that story day one, because I had been reading a review of a TV programme that I think was um, one of those cookery shows, perhaps Junior Master Chef. Mm-hmm. And the 
person who was writing the review said, you know, there's all these little kids and terrible things go wrong during the programme, like they forget to switch on the cooker and their meal is ruined. And the reviewer said it was like watching a seal cull. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, I wonder what that would be like. What would it be like to watch a seal cull? And then I thought, well, okay, I know a place where I can have this story happen. And then the autobiographical elements and my knowledge of the setting and landscape and how I could use that, they um, built, I suppose, as I was writing the story. And we were talking before, Danielle, um, about how you think um, the ideal short story or the best short stories don't always, um, you know, aren't always clear cut. You're not sure exactly why uh, they've worked, but it just leaves you with a feeling or a sense that something has changed, that something has affected you. Um, is, that's, is, that, is that true of uh, the stories that, that you, the short stories that you read that you like the best as well as the, how you set out to write them? Yeah, I like it when a short story engages me and for it to engage me and draw me in and have me participate in the story. There needs to be things left to me as the reader. So I suppose it depends on how people like to read. But I don't like it when a writer makes everything um, very, very clear cut, when a writer is telling me too much about what is happening or how the characters are getting on because I want to be drawn into working things out for myself. I like the idea, I don't know who said it, but I like the idea of readers finishing a story. And I like the idea that you can have a story that different readers will take different things from and that different readers might finish in a particular way. You know, you could have different readers taking different endings out of the same story. And I like that. I think it's a mark of a good story that it has engaged a reader enough to bring parts of themselves into the narrative and, and work with the characters. So I, I prefer it maybe when a writer is writing alongside the reader rather than writing above them mm. and talking down to them. I think you definitely get that feeling from the book. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you about, I mean, over what kind of a period were, were you writing these stories and did did certain things become obvious to you, you know, over years or are you talking over months or, you know what I mean, you, there's kind of amb- ambiguities that you like there. Um, did those change for you um, when you kind of returned to stories after after a while or, or how, how did they evolve? Okay, well, in terms of the collection as a whole, the earliest story is 2011. So they were, um, I suppose, four years, four or five years in the making. Um, Yeah, sometimes I write a story and I'm not sure that I understand myself, even when the story is finished, why certain choices have been made by particular characters. I will see how they have played out in their lives and I will have got quite a detailed insight into maybe the consequences of different choices. But I may still be unclear myself at the end of the story as to why precisely people took a particular direction in their lives. And sometimes, a long time after I finished a story, I will maybe get... Um, a glimpse into something that I didn't have even even while I was writing it. Um, I tend to do a lot of drafts and I think maybe 
things about the story emerge out of the story while I'm with it a long time. I suppose in life we don't always have the opportunity of running a situation or a human interaction through, um, you know, 30 or 40 times until we work out what someone is saying to us or what someone wants us to understand. Whereas at least in fiction, when you go some, through something 20 or 30 times, there is that um, opportunity for meaning to emerge out of a situation. So I think maybe I'm writing in terms of this is what I see and it's like I saw this and I saw this and I saw this and I saw this and I'm putting that down on the page. But it might take a long time after that for me to understand maybe the, the dynamics between the characters. And is it very clear to you then when, when, when something is completed? It's not... Um, it's not in that I need people to give me a lot of feedback and I'm lucky that I have lots of people to give me feedback. I'm a member of a writing group and my stories go to my writing group first and they'll give me feedback and Declan Mead, my editor, will read the stories and give me feedback and Lucy Luck, my agent. So often I'm relying on other people to, um, to give me a steer as to whether a story is finished and maybe what parts of it aren't working. Sometimes we're talking about very small changes, but other times they would they would be huge changes. Um, setting tends to stay. For me, I get quite attached to place. So the place that the story is playing out on, the stage of the story, if you like, usually stays. It's very rarely that I will throw out my setting. But characters can change a lot and aspects of plot can change a lot as well. So we're almost coming to the end of uh, this month's podcast, but if you could maybe, is there anything you could tell us about what you're working on at the moment? I'm working on a number of new short stories at the moment. I like to write a number of them at the same time Mm -hmm. and often um, I'll have a big messy lump of writing and a number of stories will emerge out of that and go off in different directions, even though they will be connected to each other in in little ways. I'm also working on a novel that grew out of a short story that I tried to write over a number of years from a number of different aspects, different approaches, different characters. And after a while, it became um, this this longer piece of writing that I'm writing at the moment as a novel. So you can read more about Danielle McLaughlin's work on um, irishtimes.com on the Irish Times Book Club link. Um, but that's it for this month's podcast. My thanks to Circa Hamilton and to sound engineer Gary White and of course to Danielle McLaughlin. Dinosaurs and Other Planets, it's in all good bookshops now. And if you're not lucky enough or you haven't been lucky enough to receive a copy as a Christmas gift, please do put it on your list for your reads in the new year. But until next time on the Books Podcast, goodbye. <laughs>